In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to seerahintensive.com to register and for more information. So as I was saying, Bismillah uh, alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series, our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratu Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. So previously, we left off um, discussing one of the major events uh, of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which was the battle of Khaybar. So we were talking about the battle of Khaybar from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Now in discussing and talking about the battle of Khaybar, just to kind of reset and to remind everybody uh, from where we left off, the battle of Khaybar was in the seventh year, the beginning of the seventh year of the Prophet's residence in the city of Medina. And what that means is it's the beginning of the seventh year of Hijrah. What's transpired so far and what's important to remember about the overall landscape uh, of Arabia at that particular time, Medina has continued to become more and more further established as time has gone on. Not only that, but in the sixth year, just a few months ago, the Muslims attempted to go for Umrah, to go and visit the Kaaba in Mecca. That's when they were blocked off and cut off by the Quraysh, by the Meccans. And that became the circumstance and the situation that led to Sulhul Hudaybiyah, which means the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So that's very, very noteworthy. Now after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, there is a 10-year peace that is brokered between the Muslims and the Quraysh. The Medinans and the Meccans, the people of Medina, the Muslims, the Prophet ﷺ, and the Quraysh in Mecca. Peace has been agreed to, peace has been brokered for a period of 10 years. So the Muslims are a lot more stable and established than they have ever been previously up to this particular point. Now it was at this particular time that the Prophet ﷺ had undertaken the huge task of dealing with a very problematic, a very troublesome enemy and, and a very problematic element that was not too far from Medina that had caused huge issues to the Muslims. And that were, that, those were some of the Jewish tribes that resided at the place of Khaybar. The reason why they have proved to be problematic is that after due to the treason that was committed by Banu Nadir, some of the people, the leadership of Banu Nadir had gone to Khaybar, and from there they had rallied the people of Khaybar and the leadership of Khaybar, and that became the brain trust that had formed the Al-Ahzab, the allied armies, the united armies against Medina. 
And they marched on the city of Medina, 10,000 strong. And that is what led to what we know as the Battle of the Trench, as we discussed and we studied it in a lot of detail. So after the Battle of the Trench had been concluded miraculously, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a wind, kind of like a tornado or a storm you can imagine, that just completely scattered their army and broke them apart. And they started to suffer from discord amongst one another. They started to bicker and quarrel with one another. And they just completely dispersed from there. But that does not change the fact that a lot of the leadership who was involved in that situation went right back to Khaybar. So at Khaybar, you still had a leadership, you had a force that was still very intent on uh, renewing and reviving this assault and attack against the city of Medina. That led the Prophet ﷺ, once he had brokered peace with the Meccans, with the Quraysh, now the Prophet ﷺ could properly turn his attention to dealing with this other threat. Um, in Khaybar. So as we talked about it, the Prophet ﷺ went there, again miraculously, the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was there, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted them a very swift victory through Khaybar. Towards the tail end of the Ghazwa of Khaybar, the campaign of Khaybar, there is a very notable event from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and we're going to use this as an opportunity to learn a little bit about the personal life of the Prophet ﷺ, and also, uh, so we'll also use this as an opportunity to learn about some of the key people in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So towards the end of the Battle of Khaybar, as everything was settled and everything was being you know, taken care of, at that particular time, the daughter of one of the leaders of Banu Nadir, his name was Huyay bin Akhtab al-Nadari. Huyay bin Akhtab al-Nadari. He was the leader of Banu Nadir, and he was the architect of Al-Ahzab. He was the architect, he was the force, he was the one who recruited Ghatfan and Khaybar and Quraysh and everyone together to go and attack the city of Medina in the Battle of the Trench. So he had been dealt with and had been taken care of because after the Battle of the Trench was over, he did not uh, retreat back to Khaybar. Rather what he did was he went to Banu Quraidha. And so he was captured along with, when the Prophet ﷺ went to Banu Quraidha and dealt with them, he was amongst those people and he was taken care of at that particular time. And he was dealt the punishment that the Prophet ﷺ felt appropriate at that time. His daughter, however, her name is Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. So we say radiallahu ta'ala anha, but at that particular time, her name was Safiya. Now, Safiya, uh, she was the daughter of Huyay bin Akhtab, so she was understood. She was seen to be somewhat of nobility, almost royalty if you would consider it. And what's mentioned about her is that while... Um, her father was still alive at that particular time. She was married to an individual from the tribe, and he was um, generally a pretty, you know, dignified uh, individual. He was amongst the people who had gone to fight in uh, the Battle of the Trench, and so he did not return back home. He died in the battle, in the fighting. And so after that particular time, now that her father was no longer there either, she basically was married to someone else, but forcefully. She had, forced, she had been forced to marry another individual uh, from, from Khaybar. And, while, and he was not a very good person, 
um, she she recalls her own story and she talks about the fact about how he was very abusive towards her. And he physically used to abuse her, verbally would abuse her, emotionally would abuse her. And she talks about how miserable her existence was. And then she mentions something very remarkable and very profound. She says that a few nights before the Muslims actually arrived at Khaybar, she saw a dream. And the dream that she saw was that the moon descended down, like the full moon was out in the sky. And then it's like the moon became detached from its place and it kind of glided down and landed in her lap. And she was very astonished, but it didn't have like a very scary effect. It had a very calming and a very interesting effect on her. Like it was very uh, calming and it was also very encouraging and very soothing. The, the experience that she had from the dream. So when she woke up, she told, she told her husband at that time about the dream that she had seen. And she mentions that, فَلَطَمَ وَجْهَهَا That he slapped her across the face when she told him the dream. And then he said, مَلِكَ يَثْرِب That do you desire the king of Yathrib? Yathrib was the old name of the city of Medina and Malik, meaning they're referring to the Prophet ﷺ. So instead of calling him Nabiul Medina, like the, the Prophet in the city of Medina, they were referring to him as the king of Yathrib. Because they were being stubborn and they did not want to accept the prophethood of Muhammad ﷺ. So even he, from just some of the basic knowledge that he had of the scripture, understood that the moon is symbolic and representative of a prophet. And the moon coming into one's lap basically means that this person will have a relationship with the prophet of that time. He was aware of this fact from even Jewish scripture and Jewish folklore. And so as soon as she told him that she saw the moon come into her lap, he was able to interpret it from what they knew from their tradition to say that you desire to have a relationship, you desire to be close to. The, the, the king of Yathrib, meaning the Prophet ﷺ, and he slapped her across the face very, very severely. And in fact, the narration mentions that she had a scar because of that uh, on her face, near her eye. So she, the, the, the wound was actually there on her face. And some narrations mentioned that she had a very severe black eye because of this. That this was just a couple of days before the Muslims came to Khaybar. So by the time the battle of Khaybar was completely wrapped up and everything was done, that she still had that black eye and she still had a little bit of that scar left. And so her husband of that time, that her husband at that time who was very just terrible and abusive towards her, he, he was amongst the casualties in the battle of Khaybar. So he died in the battle of Khaybar. So she was amongst the people who had been rounded up after the battle of Khaybar. And they were brought. And at that particular time, somebody mentioned to the Prophet ﷺ that amongst those who have been rounded up and captured at Khaybar, we have the daughter of Huyay bin Akhtam. And the purpose of mentioning that was that this is not just an ordinary person. This is, she is basically considered like a princess to her people. She's nobility to her people. And the Prophet ﷺ was always one to understand and respect the position of people. Right? The famous story of Ashaj ibn Abdul Qais, 
that when the Wafdu Abdul Qais comes to the Prophet ﷺ and Ashaj, one of their leaders, comes, the Prophet ﷺ refuses to begin talking to the people and entertaining them until their leader arrives. And he says that, where is your leader? Where is Ashaj? And until he does not come, the Prophet ﷺ does not begin addressing the people because he respects the position of the leader. And when the leader does arrive, the Prophet ﷺ makes room next to him for the leader to sit immediately next to the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ always understood and respected the position of a person amongst their people. That was this cultural sensitivity of the Prophet ﷺ. And there's profound wisdom in that. Profound wisdom in that. Because what is ultimately the goal and the objective? If the ultimate goal and objective is to get people to accept the message, to be open to the message, to be amenable, if that is the goal and the objective, are you going to accomplish that by offending them? By, by challenging their sensitivities? By defying everything and anything that is important to them? Or are you going to try to win them over by showing uh, a certain amount of, uh, by being reasonable, by showing a certain amount of reason, and accommodation, and sensitivity. That there are some things that you're saying that we cannot accommodate, that we cannot work with. Idols is something we're not going to be able to accommodate you in regards to. Idol worship, the whole objective here is tawheed, establishing the oneness of Allah. But as far as, if this is the person that you hold to be of a position of leadership and esteem amongst you, me being a, lecture, a little extra more courteous sort of that, towards that person, and before talking to everyone else, we're saying, do you have anything to say on behalf of your people? What does that cost to me? And then ultimately, if that person proves to be problematic, and is not cooperative, is, is, is belligerent or, or defiant, then the people themselves will understand that at least I gave the person an opportunity, but from the very get-go, to just completely reject that person, and reject the people, and not accommodate them at all, is a very problematic way to go about it. There's a very famous incident from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and I've referenced this earlier, much earlier in the Sira uh, podcast as well, that when the Prophet ﷺ, Fatih Makkah, which we'll be getting to in not too long, inshaAllah, when the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Makkah, for the conquest of Mecca, or I believe it's even further beyond that, when they come for the Hajjatul Wida'. But either way, when the Prophet when the Muslims are in control of Mecca, and the Prophet arrives at the Kaaba, if you recall and if you remember, when the Kaaba was renovated, when the, before five years before the Prophet received revelation, Iqra, when he was 35 years old, because of the flood and the damage to the Kaaba, they were not, they did not have sufficient funds to construct the entirety of the Kaaba. So what they did was they built the Kaaba as we see it today in the square form. And then there is that little area, that half circle on one side of the Kaaba that we call Hatim or Hijr Ismail, right? That we go and pray inside of, but when you do tawaf, you do tawaf around it. And the reason why you do tawaf around it, if you cut through it during your tawaf, your tawaf, that circuit would not be valid. That circuit would not be valid because that was included as an original part of the Kaaba. And they were not able to include it, so what they did was they built the Kaaba as four walls, and they just put stones or rocks around it to kind of mark the area. And that's the way it had been until throughout the, re the, the, the rest of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, until finally the Muslims were able to reclaim Mecca 
and now establish the presence of Islam there, and proper worship there. So the Prophet ﷺ, but remember, prior to the age of 35, during the actual childhood, and the you know younger years of the Prophet ﷺ, he had grown up seeing the Kaaba with that portion included. That was the Kaaba that he had grown up with. So when the Prophet ﷺ came there, he comments to Aisha anha, saying that, my heart desires to return the Kaaba back to the original foundation and formation of Ibrahim The Kaaba that I grew up with, where this portion would now be included within the structure. That's what my heart desires. But then he tells her, لَوْلَا حِدْثَانُ قَوْمِكِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ لَأَرْجَعْتُهَا That if it was not for how new, how new, your people are to Islam. He was telling Aisha radiallahu anha, and he says, your people, kind of somewhat, you know, jokingly to her, right? Because she's a Qurayshi as well, right? The daughter of Abu Bakr. It's his people as well, but he's kind of, you know, maybe talking to her like a husband and wife speak, right? And he's saying to her, that if it was not for how sensitive and young, new, your people are in the faith, where they're still making huge adjustments, not worshiping idols anymore, not doing this anymore, not doing that anymore. Then I would have returned the Kaaba back to its original formation, the Kaaba that I grew up with. But, because right now, doing something that drastic would maybe push them past their limit. And, and the job, the objective is to get them to accept and embrace the truth. And whatever accommodations can be made, need to be made. So that people embrace the truth. So getting back to the story here, I just wanted to derive and kind of really extrapolate this lesson from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, that sensitivity towards the people, right? In an area where we can accommodate them, they should be accommodated. And subhanAllah, right? A lot of, in our context, we're not talking about a victor, Right or or somebody who dominates or is victorious and somebody who's been defeated. No, we're we're all on equal footing here in our dawah efforts, right? But in that context, the Prophet ﷺ is the victor. He's in a position of power, superiority. He very well could have just done whatever it is that he wanted to do. But Subhanallah, even in that situation, the Prophet ﷺ was so sensitive to people. Right, so getting back to it, when he's informed that the daughter of Huyay bin Akhtab, Safiya, who is held in high esteem and high regard amongst her people, is amongst the captives, the Prophet ﷺ in the Hadith of Bukhari, he basically uh, calls for her. And when she comes to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ at that time basically tells her that I have, I will grant you your freedom. I grant you your freedom. Right, go. As a gesture of respect. I grant you your freedom. And when the Prophet ﷺ grants her, you know, the freedom, basically frees her from captivity, says you're free to go, she accepts and embraces Islam at that moment. Ashadu wa la ilaha Wa ashadu annaka Rasulullah. And she relays her dream. 
She says, the reason why I so readily accepted Islam was because of this dream that I had. And that's how it was interpreted. And today, you display such graciousness and generosity. And she embraces Islam. And that's when the Prophet ﷺ proposes to her, and basically offers to marry her. And she accepts the proposal, accepts the offer, and becomes a wife of the Prophet ﷺ, and becomes a mother of the believers. And this is how, the, this is the story of uh, uh, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha becoming one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and the mother of the believers. Now, what's very interesting is that over here, it narrates some of the interactions and, you know, uh, basically what the dynamic of their marriage was. And there's, this is something that's very notable. That after they depart from Khaybar and they're on their way back to Medina, the Prophet has married her, she accepted the proposal, their husband and wife, and so on their way back from Medina, as they're camping and stopping at one of the places, the Prophet basically um, says that we should have a walima, we should have a feast to celebrate the marriage of the Prophet to Safiya So the Prophet basically invites people, he says, everybody come and let's have a walima together. And it mentions that somebody ends up bringing, uh, the Prophet he tells Bilal to go and get a dish. And then the Prophet puts a little bit of dates, he puts a little bit of, you know, um, something kind of like butter or cream. The Prophet has some type of you know wheat and barley and things like that and he puts it in the tray and then the the people see it as well and everybody brings whatever a little bit of food that they can they, they can bring some of their rations and they all kind of put it into the tray together and they lay it out and then the entire army of the Muslims they gather together and they eat this very simple humble food together and this is a celebration of the marriage of the Prophet to the mother of the believers Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha the simplicity, the beauty, um, the unity with which the marriage was celebrated is really remarkable. And it's really a lesson for all of us in, in, in how we should envision and how we should approach. And I know this is a very, on one side, it's a very, it seems to be a very tired old subject. We constantly bring it up and talk about it. And it doesn't seem to be making much of a dent in the community. So then we eventually kind of bore of it and we say, well, why bother? Why talk about it? But on the other side, it, there's also the issue of the fact that it's, we, we, we are seeing the community stray further and further and further away from the example of the Prophet ﷺ in this regard. Right? And it's something that we do have to remind ourselves of. And we really have to come back to. And I understand, I'll be the first to say that simplicity is something that's generally speaking, it's relative. Right? And it might be different from person to person. But it's something we really have to think about and really have to embrace. And I know uh, uh, on yet another front, there are some people who are very, they are so sensitive to this particular issue and subject, that when it's brought out, when it's brought up, they're very averse to it and they're very bothered by it. Because there seems to be kind of like a sense of guilting people. And our objective is not to guilt people. And it's not to just beat a dead horse, the same old subject, right? But it's really to get us to think, and to think critically, to think a little bit beyond ourselves, to think about the world that we are a part of, the ummah that we are members of, right? The species that we belong to, 
the communities that we live in, like to think a little bit beyond ourselves and the immediate scope of you know the, the, the gratification that those scenarios and those scenes and those situations might bring to one. So this was the walima of the Prophet ﷺ. The next thing is as, as they have the walima, now they proceed, they continue back on towards the city of Medina. There's a very beautiful interaction uh, that's narrated in the book of uh, Sahih Bukhari by Anas anhu that really shows the chivalry, the gentleness, the, the respect that the Prophet ﷺ extended towards his spouse. That the type of respect and the type of care and consideration the Prophet ﷺ had for his wife. Right? And that very, you know, very, very, to be very honest, how it was even observable, and how it was demonstrated actually, because everything the Prophet ﷺ did was for our guidance. Right? That it was demonstrated in public. So that we would learn a lesson from it. That the narration of Bukhari, Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, فَرَأَيْتُ نَبِي صَلَّى يُحَوِّي لَهَا وَرَأَهُ بِعَبَاءَ That he basically says that the Prophet ﷺ was riding on the animal, and she was riding behind him. And what the Prophet ﷺ had done was he had taken his shawl, and he had basically kind of like draped it from, you know, behind him over her to cover her as well. So that she could rest or, you know, maybe sleep on the back of the Prophet ﷺ, but yet have, have like some sense of privacy. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ had taken a shawl and kind of wrapped it around her while she was riding behind him. And not only that, but when it came time for her to get, when they stopped, and then they stopped the animal, and when they were getting ready to get going again, what the Prophet ﷺ would do is that when they stopped the animal, he would get off of the animal, and then the Prophet ﷺ would stand there, and one narration mentions that she would place one foot on the shoulder of the Prophet ﷺ, and he would hold her hand and she would get down, and then he would have his leg kind of out, like he would kind of you know, crouch down on the ground. She would place one leg on his shoulder, he would hold her hand, and then she would kind of swing her other leg around, and then she would place the other leg on his knee, and that's how she would get down. And everyone saw this, Anas was watching this. Narrating this in the Sahih of Bukhari. And when it was time to get going again, again the Prophet ﷺ kind of crouched down, right, near the animal, and then he took her hand and she stepped on the, the knee, the leg of the Prophet ﷺ. And then she placed, one narration mentions, her other foot on the shoulder of the Prophet ﷺ, and then got onto the animal. Because Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha was a little bit shorter in stature, and so it was very hard for her to climb onto the animal. And so this is how the Prophet ﷺ accommodated her. Right? This is the care, this is the consideration that the Prophet ﷺ demonstrated. And while we're here, kind of... Uh, and and uh, another thing about it is that when she got married to the Prophet ﷺ, he saw the mark, her eye was still black, she still had a mark on her face, and the, uh, she mentions that the Prophet ﷺ asked her, Mahada, Masha'nuha, what is this, what happened? And then she told him the story about how this individual had struck her. Not only that, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, she mentions, you know, something very, very interesting and very remarkable. And what I wanted us to do was, um, I wanted us to use this 
uh, as an opportunity, as we've done previously as well, um, to learn a little bit about Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha and generally kind of talk about her. So Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha is a very interesting person. And part of the reason why the Prophet ﷺ extended the type of courtesy and respect that he had extended to her was because she was a direct descendant. She was a direct descendant of Harun alayhi salam. Her lineage was actually traced. And the Prophet was aware of this because of her father. Her father was very public and had very publicly established his lineage, Huyay bin Akhtab, that he was from the progeny of Harun alayhi salam. And so she is from the progeny of a Prophet. And the Prophet was aware of that. And that was part of the reason why he extended the courtesy that he extended to her. This is a daughter of Prophets. Um, she, I had mentioned before that she was initially married to Salam ibn Mishkam, um, and then after he had died, after he was deceased, she was then married to Kinana ibn Abil Huqayq. He is the one who had basically struck her, and then he also um, was amongst the fallen, he was amongst those who were killed at Khaybar. Um, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, Something that she mentions that's uh, very, very interesting is that she says, after I had been married uh, to the Prophet ﷺ, because her father, Huyay bin Akhtab, was the one who was the architect of the entire Battle of the Trench, Khandaq. And he was unapologetic. He was also the one who had then gone and recruited Banu Quraidha, to turn against the Muslims, commit treason, and try to come from behind and stab the Muslims in the back. He was the one. And even after everything was said and done, and he was captured, he was unapologetic. Completely. Cursing the Prophet ﷺ. Proud of what he had done. And so, as was the order of the day, and the law and the decree, that he was amongst those who were executed. For their treason, and for their treachery. And this is his daughter. And she mentions something very remarkable. She says that, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم مِنْ أَبْغَضِ النَّاسِ إِلَيَّ قَتَلَ أَبِي وَأَخِي وَزَوْجِي فَمَا زَالَ يَعْتَذِرُ إِلَيَّ وَيَقُولُ إِنَّا أَبَاكَ أَلَبَّ عَلَى الْعَرَبِ وَفَعَلَ وَفَعَلَ حَتَّى ذَهَبَ ذَلِكَ مِنْ نَفْسِي She basically says that, before Islam, before I had seen that dream, the Prophet ﷺ was, I had basically made up my mind that he was my enemy. That he's the one who had executed my father. And after I saw the dream and I had that experience with the Prophet ﷺ, I accepted Islam, the Prophet ﷺ proposed to me, I became married to him. What was in my heart towards the Prophet ﷺ had turned from whatever hatred, mistaken hatred, or, or Ill, misplaced animosity that there was, it had turned to love and affection. But the Prophet ﷺ was so sensitive that the Prophet ﷺ, after we got married, he sat down with me and he spoke to me. And he talked to me. And this is where learning those lessons in communication that we so often emphasize, right, in relationships. She says the Prophet ﷺ spoke to me very openly and he said, look, you and I both, we need to not pretend like it didn't happen. What transpired with your father, it happened. 
And what had to be done, was done. But I want you to understand that your father left no other alternative. Your father was set on the war path. As far as he was concerned, there was only one end to this. And that was just massacre and bloodshed. And he actually sat there and explained it to me and talked to me and had a conversation with me about it. She says to the point where I assured him that I had no ill will towards the Prophet ﷺ. And I saw the error of my father's ways. Right, so this is also something very powerful and very sensitive that we see in a personal relationship of the Prophet ﷺ. And there's no doubt about the fact that this is one of the wisdoms of the Prophet's marriage to Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, teaching us that how these relationships can, should work and can work. Not only that, but the Prophet was so protective and so sensitive about people's past. He himself was the first to talk about the fact that, look, your father and I had this conflict. And I'd like to talk to you about it and have an open conversation with you about it. And she uses the word, يَعْتَذِرُوا إِلَيَّ Like explaining it to me. The Prophet doesn't owe an explanation to anyone. But he's explaining it to me. But on the flip side, the Prophet is so protective and defensive about anyone else bringing it up, bringing her past up, or her family's past up as a negative point against her. He's talking to her about it, explaining himself, but he will not allow for her to be taunted in any way. For her to be teased in any way about where she's coming from. And it's a very famous narration that Imam Tirmidhi mentions an authentic narration. Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, لَمَّا بَلَغَ صَفِيَّا أَنَّ حَفْسَةَ رَضِيَ ta'ala anha قَالَتْ بِنْتِ Yahudi. That one of the mothers of the believers, Hafsa radiallahu ta'ala anha, you know, commented something about Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha by saying bint Yahudi, the daughter of the Jewish man. Fabakat. And it really kind of bothered her. She felt like she was being taunted about her past. Your father is Umar. Yeah, my father was a terrible man. But that doesn't mean that you can kind of rub it in my face. I wish I had a father like Umar, but I don't. So it brought her to tears. And the Prophet ﷺ, she didn't go telling the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ came home as she was wiping the tears from her face. And he said, My Yubkiki, what happened? Why are you crying? And she said that Safiya bint Umar, she said, Qalatli inni ibn tu Yahudi. Then my dad was such and such Jewish man and enemy of the Prophet and so on and so forth. فَقَالَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ إِنَّكِ لَإِبْنَةُ نَبِي No, no, no. You are the great, 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 great granddaughter of a Prophet of Allah. Nabi. You're from the progeny of a Nabi. Harun is your ancestor. وَإِنَّ عَمَّكِ لَنَبِيٌ not only that, but your great, 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 great uncle is also a prophet, Musa alayhi salam. And not only that, but you are married to a prophet. You are the daughter of a prophet, the niece of a prophet, the wife of another prophet. 
فَفِيمَا تَفْخُرَ عَلَيْكَ So what is she bragging about then? What is she holding over you? What does she have to boast about to you? Right? ثُمَّ قَالَ إِتَّقِ اللَّهِ يَا حَفْصَةً And then the Prophet ﷺ called Hafsa radiallahu ta'ala anha, and he said that fear God. Be conscious of Allah. Be careful how you talk to people. Because how you speak to people can affect your position and your standing and your relationship with Allah. You have to be very cautious, very careful. An authentic narration. Right? And this is from also the interaction of the Prophet ﷺ uh, with... Um, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. Not only that, there's another very beautiful narration that mentions that the Prophet ﷺ, when he went for Hajj, and all the wives, Hajjatul Wida', which we will study in a lot of detail eventually, inshaAllah, that the Prophet ﷺ took all of the mothers of the believers, all of his wives to Hajj as well. And she says that along the way, my camel. She says, basically sat down, would not cooperate, and was being very difficult, would not kind of like obey me. And it was getting very frustrating. And she says that because of that, I kept kind of lagging behind. The camel wouldn't listen to me, it would turn around, it would start going sideways, it would just sit down, it wouldn't get back up. And then when we stopped, and I would try to get it up, then it wouldn't get up, and I kept lagging behind. And people have to kept coming back and helping me. And the Prophet ﷺ, he had to keep turning around and looking for me. And after a while, it just became embarrassing. As you can imagine, right? Hajjatul Wida, just from Medina. Jumping ahead a little bit, just from Medina and the surrounding areas, there were 30,000 people who were traveling together to Hajj. And then there were another 100,000 people who would congregate in Mecca. Over 120,000 people perform Hajj. So 30,000 people are traveling together. And Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha keeps kind of, you know, having trouble and issues, so she got embarrassed. And she says that my embarrassment turned to frustration, and the frustration just led me to just break down into tears. And as I was like kind of riding on the animal, and I broke down into tears, she says that the Prophet ﷺ, فَجَاءَ النَّبِي صَلَّى She says, فَبَكَيْتُ I started crying. فَجَاءَ النَّبِي صَلَّى The Prophet ﷺ came back around. فَجَعَلَ يَمْسَحُ دُمُوعِي بِرِدَائِهِ وَبِيَدِهِ And the Prophet ﷺ started to wipe my tears away with his hand, and then he took his shawl and he wiped my, like dried my face. وَجَعَلْتُ لَا أَزَّادُ إِلَّا بُكَاءً And now everyone's watching him consoling me. So she said, I started to cry even more. <laughs> right? I started to cry even more. وَهُوَ يَنْهَانِي And she says, the Prophet ﷺ kept telling me, it's okay, it's okay, don't cry, don't cry. فَلَمَّا كَثْرَةَ عَلَيْهَ زَبَرَنِي And she says that finally, and so I started crying, he came back and started consoling me, and I cried even more. Then he said, it's okay, it's okay, don't cry. And the more he said, don't cry, the more I cried. Until finally the Prophet ﷺ said, that's it, stop crying. And she said, then I stopped crying. Right? So just that interaction between them. But what I really want to highlight, aside from the different personalities, and you know how things work between, between couples and families and loved ones and relationships, what I really, really want to kind of highlight over here is the fact that the Prophet ﷺ ultimately, um, this the, the public display, you know, kind of the public affection the Prophet ﷺ had. 
And, and, and how the Prophet ﷺ was not ashamed, he was not embarrassed. He was not ashamed, he was not embarrassed of demonstrating and displaying the affection that he had. And love and care and consideration for his wife. Right? And that was something very, really remarkable about the Prophet ﷺ. Another narration of Safiya radiallahu ta'ala, there's lots of very interesting narrations. Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, in another narration, she says, authentic narration, كان رسول الله يسمو عتاكيفاً The Prophet was doing i'tikaf in the masjid. فَأَتَيْتُهُ أَزُورُهُ لَيْلًا So I came during the night time after the masjid kind of had, you know, cleared out and everyone had kind of secluded to their corners. I came to sit with the Prophet ﷺ and talk to the Prophet ﷺ, visit with him. So let's do the math. Alright? The Prophet ﷺ is doing i'tikaf. Where do we do i'tikaf? In the sister section. Now where, where is it? In the, in the lobby of the masjid. Now where is i'tikaf done? It's in, done in the masjid. Alright? And she's saying, I came to visit with the Prophet ﷺ. In the masjid. What are we gonna do now? We have a sister in the masjid. Just burn the place down. Khalas, <laughs> let's retire this masjid now. It's been ruined. Right? Obviously for somebody who doesn't follow my bizarre manner of speaking, I'm being facetious, I'm being sarcastic, right? But the mother of the believers, radiallahu ta'ala anha, came in the masjid to visit with the Prophet And she sat down with her husband. Yes, it's the Prophet him, but sat down in the masjid with him. فَحَدَّثْتُهُ and I sat down and I spoke to him. Why is she mentioning spoke to him? Meaning it wasn't just like a drive-by like, Okay, Assalamu alaykum wa alaykum salam. Let the fitna be removed from the masjid. وَلَعَيَاذُ بِاللَّهِ Astaghfirullah, right? فَحَدَّثُ Like I sat down and I spoke to him. ثُمُّ قُمْتُ لِأَنْقَلِبْ Then I got up. لِأَرْجِعْ Another narration says لِأَرْجِعْ To go back home. فَقَامَ لِيُقَبِّلَنِي and the Prophet ﷺ got up to kiss me and embrace me before I went home. Right? This is the chivalry, the love of the Prophet. ﷺ. This is the sunnah. We like to invoke sunnah, right? Sunnah. Right? So we like to invoke sunnah. This is the sunnah. Alright? فَمَرَّ رَجُلَانِ مِنَ الْأَنصَارِ Two Young men from the Ansar kind of passed by, kind of happened by. So they're just kind of like, you know, it's nighttime, he's doing i'tikaf, it's a month of Ramadan. Right? So they're just kind of strolling by, kind of calmly just strolling by. And when they saw the Prophet with his wife, embracing his wife, they kind of sped up started walking by quickly, you know, like awkward, like, oh, okay. And they started to speed by. فَقَالَ النَّبِي صَلَّى عَلَىٰ رِسْلِكُمَا Hey, slow down. Come here, come here. Come here. Right? And then the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّهَا صَفِيَّةَ بِنْ تَحْوِيَيْهِ This is my wife, Safiya. And they said, SubhanAllah, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of God. Like, SubhanAllah, like, why would you explain yourself to us? God forbid that we would ever demand an explanation from you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّ الشَّيْطَانَ يَجْرِي مِنْ إِبْنِ آدَمْ مَجْرَ الدَّمْ 
Shaitan flows through the human being like the way the blood flows through, messes with a person's head. And I was afraid that shaitan might try to throw a little thought into your head about what was going on. This is a hadith of Bukhari and Muslim. So yes, the lesson is there that the Prophet provided clarity. And he taught us a lesson that we gotta be careful. Shaitan's gonna try to mess with your head about people. But let's not also forget the context of the hadith. This is the wife of the Prophet visiting with him in the masjid, sitting down with him, and he's embracing her and sending her off back home. That's the sunnah of the Prophet Halima radiallahu, uh, excuse me, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala she was known as Halima. Like as a quality, like hilm. Like she was very, very patient. She was very calm, right? She was very uh, devout. And another thing about her, was that she was somebody who was very particular about personal relationships. Okay, so Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he mentions, قَدْ بَلَغَهُ مِنْ جَارِيَ لِصَفِيَّةَ أَنَّ صَفِيَّةَ رَضِيَ ta'ala anha تُحِبُّ السَّبْتِ This is after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. While Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was khalifa, one of the, you know, one of the, the, the servants, who used to go and kind of help out Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, she comes to Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu and reports to him, reports to him saying, Safiya's very observant of the Sabbath. Like the Jewish observance. Right? Trying to basically kind of make like an indirect, some type of accusation. And she says, وَتَصِلُ الْيَهُودُ and she maintains very good relations, very close personal ties with a lot of the Jewish tribes. And so Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu sends for the mother of the believer, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, to talk to her. And we learn from the practice, this practice, before I even tell you what happens, we learn from this that Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, some could say that, okay, well, somebody just brings you information, you're just gonna go to that person? That that seems kind of like you're validating the information the person is bringing you, no. But there's a bigger objective behind that. Sometimes we're very superficial with our analysis. Somebody brings you something, and we're just kind of like, no, no, just dismiss it, and don't bring it up to them, and don't. But if you don't want anything remaining in your heart, and also you don't know what, what's going to transpire after that. What if that same person goes back, and says that Umar radiallahu ta'ala who found out that you do this, this, and this. And she's like, he didn't say anything to you. He didn't say anything to you? He didn't say anything to me. Oh, I wonder what that means. And the best way to kind of squash all of that is you just talk to the person. And there's a relationship here. This is the mother of the believers. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is a khadim of the Prophet a devout follower of the Prophet ﷺ. This is like a mother to him. So he says, I will speak to my mother. And he basically says, he asks her, and she says, أَمَّا السَّبْتْ فَإِنِّي لَمْ أُحِبُّهُ مُنذُ أَنْ أَبْدَلَنِيَ اللَّهُ مُنذُ أَنْ أَبْدَلَنِيَ اللَّهُ يَوْمَ الْجُمُعَةِ She says, as far as the Sabbath is concerned, I haven't even observed that day ever since Allah gave me يَوْمُ الْجُمُعَةِ So I don't know what somebody's talking about. Yawm al is a special day to me now. The day of Friday is the day I observe. 
وما اليهود فإن لي فإن لي فيهم رحما فأناصلها. Yeah, I do maintain some relationships with some individuals of the Jewish tribes, but I don't do it politically. هي تصل اليهود. Like this person trying to paint a picture of some political alliance I have with them. I do so. Why? I still have family amongst them. I have uncles and aunts. صلة الرحم وصاحبهما في الدنيا معروفا. Right? Even if your family turns is against your faith, you don't oblige, you don't forsake your Islam, but you still maintain respectful relations with them. Right? So she says that's what it is. ثم قادل الجارية. Then she says to that that's that 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 the the servant, that girl who did this. ما حملك على ما صنعتي. Why would you do that? She says قالت الشيطان. She says shaitan messed with my head. Like I shouldn't have done it, it was wrong. فَقَالَ لَهَا صَفِيَ صَفِيَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهَا said, اِذْهَبِي فَأَنْتِ حُرَّةِ She was a slave prior to this, and Sophia says, go now, you have been freed. You've been freed. And that's an act of generosity and kindness as a response to an act of, like betrayal. And also it's wisdom on the part of Sophia رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهَا that you need to go figure your issues out, but in the meantime, in the meantime, I just can't have you here causing problems. But you should go and fix your issues. You should go and fi- solve your problem. And this is another remarkable story about Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, I'll finally conclude with this. She passed away in the month of Ramadan, in the year 50 after Hijrah. So she passed away 10 years after the Prophet sallallahu uh, excuse me, 40 years after the Prophet sallallahu she passed away 40 years after the Prophet so She lived through the eras of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu majma'een. And she lived to quite a later time. And she passed away 40 years after the Prophet in the month of Ramadan. And at that particular time, the leader of the Muslim world at that time was Muawiyah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Her janazah was performed in, you know, uh, at the Masjid of the Prophet outside the Masjid of the Prophet And she was buried in Jannatul Baqiyah. She was buried in the graveyard of Al-Baqiyah along with the other wives of the Prophet and the family of the Prophet ﷺ. This is the story of our mother, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. So inshallah with that, uh, we'll conclude here for this week and then inshallah we'll continue on. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that we've said and heard. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to internalize these valuable lessons from the life of the Prophet And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make the life of the Prophet a shining, guiding light within our lives. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasakfiruku wa natubu ilayk.